Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Thanks for being with us here today. I'm so grateful for you. I appreciate getting to spend time with you here on the radio as we do such amazing things together. We make such a difference in the world. Each of us has that thing that we're passionate about. Um, we have talents and skills, and they all kind of come together into our passion so that we can stand for something. And that's really what we want to talk about today is what is the thing that your passion drives you to stand for? What do you stand for? What do you make a difference for in this world? So often there are people who, I don't know how else to say it, they kind of just ramble about. They, they have a thing that they should make a stand for. You know, I don't usually use that word, so um, pay attention. Um, but yet, they don't. And we've all fallen into that. So I don't want to go into a place of judgment. We've all been to that place where we should have stood for something and we didn't. But the question today really is, what do you stand for? What does your passion, your purpose in life drive you to, compel you to make a difference for? And then how does that show up? For each person, it shows up differently in the world. You know, some people are out on the streets marching, um, you know, carrying signs, whatever. Other people are working diligently, maybe even behind a desk somewhere. Um, of course, our authors are writing books about the thing that their passion drives them towards, and that makes a big difference. Um, there are so many ways that we can make a stand for that thing that our passion drives us towards. Um, it sounds so easy and yet it can be so difficult, can't it? Sometimes the easiest thing, the thing that we'd really like to do, is kind of run away and hide, right? Not take the stand for that thing because it can be difficult. There may come some ridicule with it. People are obviously going to disagree with you. I mean, if everybody agreed on every single solitary thing, you wouldn't have to make a stand for anything because we would all be clones. And the world wouldn't be that much fun either. I mean, there's something to be said for discourse, disagreement. I heard somebody say the other day that one of the best things that they like in politics, and no, I'm not going to get too deep into politics, although there are some political things in this particular episode. Um, fun, though. You'll enjoy it. Um, but he said one of the things he appreciated most about it is the diversity, is that there are differing opinions. And that he thinks that for any of us, whatever we stand for, having somebody that has a differing opinion helps both uh, you know, make our opinion stronger, helps us have to look at it and think about it. But it also, you know, kind of creates a check and balance that allows the world to stay sane as opposed to going just totally crazy. Um, we could so easily do that, couldn't we? Right. Um, you know, and it's just one of those kind of things where we need to understand what we stand for. Fun play of words there, wasn't it? Um, I mean, really, what do you stand for? What does your passion drive you to? And what do you stand for? Now, I'm not asking you to take a stand, um, life or death, you know, the give me liberty or give me death kind of uh, those kind of revolutionary stands, but just simply and purely, what are the things that your passion compels you towards? What does your passion drive you to? What do you stand for? I have a couple of really amazing international best-selling authors that have great books that are both really fun, great reads, great information. 
but it also really allows them to take that thing that they're really passionate about and use it in a in a fun way that helps us learn new information but also gives us something that we can be like hmm that's interesting I needed that information and then we need to decide on which side of that particular discourse do we stand so today we want to talk about what you stand for what does your purpose compel you and drive you to stand for so that we can all of us live as thriving entrepreneurs we're going to take a quick commercial break and then jump into our great authors here on thriving entrepreneur If you're an author who's on a mission, stand out with your brand out. <laughs> Check this out, guys. Yep, everything's marketing, and marketing is everything. Your existing book can become a best-selling book, or even, hey, like mine, a number one international best-selling book in five days. Listen, if your business isn't known by everybody, it's obscurity and that's death, right? The same thing is true for your book. If you're not happy with the way your book is performing, you got that far and then it just fell off the face of the planet, kind of feeling go to yourbestsellertoday.com schedule a talk with steve it's risk-free it's guaranteed it's proven we've done it thousands of times what are you waiting for yes yourbestsellertoday.com this time next week you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve reach the people that you came to serve come on now what are you waiting for grab a pen here we go all you got to do is book a call yourbestsellertoday.com go to yourbestsellertoday.com Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. We have some fun stuff we're going to talk about today as we dive deeply into what do you stand for? What does your passion compel you and drive you to take a stand for? And what do you then do with it? I love both of these authors and I'm really excited to bring this first one to you. It is information that I both enjoyed learning as well as, you know, because I just love learning. I bet you do too. Um, but as well as it's important for us to know, doesn't again matter which side of the equation that you take a stand on, but in some issues we need to know where do you stand. And in this case, uh, again, I think it's a great opportunity for us to, without further ado, I want to jump right into our international best-selling author here and really enjoy together the discourse about his book. Join me in welcoming Dr. Richard Proctor. Hey, Richard, how are you doing today? Today's a good day. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So tell us a little bit about who you are and your background. Well, I've been around for a couple of years. I'm coming on 80 years old, so that gives you a feel that I've seen some stuff. Uh, I started economics back in 1960. I started the conspiracy, which nobody believes exists, but which does anyway, in 1979. No, 1969 to 70. I, I brought my master's, doctorate, degrees in political economics. I've, I've written 10 books. I've done things so that I can help people. Uh, the books I've written are specifically to help people understand what's happening today in our society. That's what saving the Constitution is all about. What's happening? What can we do? What does the Constitution really say? And the book is called Saving the Constitution. So um, we're going to jump pretty deep into this, but just give us a general overview. What is the problem existing in society that we're not using the Constitution right? Oh, well, okay, good. That started, you'll not believe this, but that started the first time that we didn't use it correctly in 1790. It hadn't even been dry in the ink yet. Then in, in 17. 1796, another major violation. That was the Supreme Court. The first one was the legislature. The next one was in 1803 when Marshall decided he wanted to take control of the country on the Supreme Court. That's the sequence. We have come to believe 
that the Supreme Court is in charge of our country and anything they say is law. That's not true. They are not a legislative body. But since we do that, and since they've gone so far afield of the real world, the real constitution and our real rights, we are in a horrible position. Then the media has been, was purchased in 1920s. And since the early 1920s, they've been feeding us what they want us to see. And who is they? The international banking establishments, which I call them. They're the banks, you guys. It's the people that have all the money. It's the banking system. So we're in a squeeze because we're always told over and over and over again what the banking system wants us to know. And we're told over and over and over again what the Supreme Court wants us to think the Constitution says. That's why we're in the quandary we're in. We haven't elected a president of the United States correctly since, since 1796 when Adams ran. We've only done it three times in the entire history of our country. Every other election's been controlled by the political parties. And that's the problem, folks. That's the problem. So how was it supposed to, con constitutionally, how was an election supposed to go? Oh, it's supposed to start, it's supposed to start in the states by them selecting some electoral college members. Now, those members are not selected to, to tell the country what the popular vote was. There was no popular vote. Popular vote is another thing they've stuck in there. We're a republic. A republic means representative government. Representative government means the people are in charge, okay? We gotta be in charge. So this is what the first step is to elect a president. The legislature selects in whatever manner it chooses, the number of people that equal representatives and senators. Utah, it's six. So I'll just use Utah as an example. Although according to the constitution, Utah should have 102, but they have six. If you'll read my saving book, you'll discover why it's 102 in this state. We have a population of 3 million. Okay, anyway, so those people, whoever they are, the six of them in our case today, will meet in a room in the state of Utah on the same day that every other electoral college member in every other state is meeting, all at the same time. They meet in their room in, in whatever Salt Lake or Ogden or Provo or whatever they want, wherever it's held, probably Salt Lake, probably in the Capitol building, but it doesn't matter where, as long as those six people meet in the state. Then each one of them is going to select two people. Both of them can be out of the state and, and one, or, or one in the state, but one also always has to be out of the state. So they can choose one or two people out of the state or one in the state and one out of the state. They choose two people. Those individuals, all six of them now vote the same way. Their ballot is the same way. Their selection is the same way. Their nomination is the same way. In our society today, we would call it a nomination rather than a vote because we don't understand what they meant by the word vote. Nonetheless, it's the same thing. The state then would take all 12 votes and tabulate them together. And Mary got three and John got four and Susie got one. And that's how it works. There'll be 12 votes and they'll tabulate them. Then they'll put it in a sealed envelope. I mean, sealed tight with, with stuff on it. So you'll know nobody's ever opened it. That kind of seal, not just a licking seal. And then they'll send that to the, to the president of the Senate, president pro tem of the Senate. When he receives all 50 of those envelopes, the Senate and the House will meet together in a combined meeting. There'll be 535 people in that meeting, okay? Because today we have that many senators and representatives, 535. They will open these ballots from each state in the presence of all 535 of those folks or the quorum that, that, that consists of it, but they should be all there. Okay, now on a screen somewhere, they'll tally them. There's some for Jim, there's some for Susan, there's some for Joe, there's some for, for Ed, Edward, everything. They'll tally them all, then they'll add them all up. Each one will have a certain number of electoral votes. Now, let me read you what the Constitution says they're supposed to do next, because this is very important. 
very important. The next thing they're supposed to do is when they're counted, the person having the greatest number of votes will be president, as long as such a number be a majority of the whole number. So the whole number that they're going to see is a whole bunch, okay? But let's just say 535 times two, which is 1,070. Okay, that's the whole number that we have in today's society because we have 500, 532 electors, 535 electors. So there'll be 1,070. Those will all tally. If nobody receives one, one half of a majority of that, five, that 1,070, that 1,070, 107, whoops, 1070 divided by two, whoops, 1070 divided by two equals 535, of course. If nobody gets more than 535, nobody gets more than that, then it goes the top five. The top five go to the House of Representatives, not go to it. They, they vote immediately. It says, then the House of Representatives shall immediately choose by ballot one of those five for president. And if no, yeah, okay, the five highest on the list shall be in that like manner chosen. But in choosing the president, the vote shall be taken by states. Okay, now, what these people have done is they voted all of them out, they put them all in order, they take the top five, they set those aside, and then they choose by state, each state having one vote. Doesn't matter whether someone has a 500 electoral uh, uh, representatives in Congress, and another one has two. Those two states each have equal power in that selection. So by state, each, each state votes, and the majority of that is president. If, there's, if it's a tie vote, they'll vote again. I mean, they got to do that. It doesn't say that in the Constitution, but that's what they've got to do until they actually come up with a number that's, that is a majority. That person is president. The next in line, okay, is the vice president. There are no parties. There are no parties. This party stuff was stuffed down our throats. And in 1800, they used that election to ensure that we understood it. The political parties did. And they had horrible election time, as bad as we've had with Trump and, and Hillary. That's how it's done. It's not a tough thing. It's an easy thing. Now think about this for a minute, Steve. This is quite important. These men were inspired, I use the word correctly, inspired to develop that system because it's never existed in any place before. They've studied all kinds of governments. They've studied democracies and republics. They've studied all of this. But this system of selecting the president in a republic has never been written down or used before. That means they made it up. And when they made it up through inspiration, it is a perfect way to keep our president elected. And the electors will always look at the requirements and anybody that they nominate, vote for, will always have all of the requirements that the constitution lays out for the president and vice president. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how it's done. I wish it was done that way today. We wouldn't have any hassles, any at all. We've been taught that everybody's got to vote and that's not a republic, that's a democracy. So if that's how we're gonna treat the president election and all these others, then we might as well change the Pledge of Allegiance to, we pledge allegiance to the flag of the, of the democracy, not of the republic, because we don't have a democracy. We have a republic, but today everybody thinks it's a democracy where majority rules. That's not how it's done in a republic. If we'd followed our republic today, we would have a lot of things don't exist as they do today. A lot of them would not exist, but the president election would be crucial. And since the election of 1800, it's including that election, never been used, never. So I guess my question, um, the only major republic, truly republic 
form of government that I can think of would be ancient Greece. Um, that's as, at least as close of a representation. How is the Greek states, city-states, um, how is their form of government different than what the United States is? is? That exact comparison, I don't know, Steve. I don't know the exact comparison, but I do know that they did not have a system where it was where they all voted like this one is with the president choose five, all those kinds of things. I do know that I don't know everything they did, but they didn't do exactly what I'm talking about because they had in relation to ours a very, very small society, very small in relation to ours. So this particular system has never been used in the world before. But I don't know exactly what they did precisely. And so, of course, you know, we're in 2020 and we have things like cars and the Internet and all those technologies that I'm sure they couldn't have even imagined back in 1776. Yes. Um, if you um, insert technology into in, in a good way, not in a, you know, trying to mess it up even more way, but in a good way, how could you um, use technology to your advantage to really stick with the way it should be done constitutionally. Can you? Yes, you can. I'm not sure that people want to do this. This is what could be done and it should be done. Remember, we in Utah should have 100. The, the nation should have somewhere close to 11,000 members in the house. Now we're talking a pretty big house. The states should be represented by the, the states should be represented in the Senate, not by popular vote. That's another very bad error. So here we have senators that are not responsible to their, they're not representing the proper person. Here we have 435 instead of 11,000 in the House. So that's the first number we've got to get corrected. We really do. Now, once that's corrected, technology now saves the day. You can do on Skype, on video, on a special government video system, it doesn't matter, every one of those House members could meet and see each other as a group and talk individually to the group. It could be easily done through networks, through computers, through technology. So it's not a problem. And then each of the members would be in their district. Utah would have 100 separate districts of 30,000 or less each. Those districts could talk to their representatives and keep track. There wouldn't be a great a great wall established to prevent you from talking to your representatives. They'd be right there for you. They'd, they'd only use money that's from their group. They'd only do polling from their group. They'd only do everything from their 30,000 group. And then it could work and technology is really set to do that. And if we would, we could. Every state could do that if they wanted. You see, states have autonomy and they all swear according to the, six, the, the Article 6, they all swear that they will support and defend the Constitution. So if they're going to do what they swore to do, then they should look back, see the 30,000, and redistrict the state into 30,000 separate districts. I mean, I mean, 100 separate districts. Oh, did I say that wrong? Into 100 separate districts. Then they would select the representatives, the, the district would select their representative and we'd send 100 people to Congress on the 1st of January, this coming year. And that would comprise the House. And if Utah was doing that, other states would too, because they wouldn't want Utah to have all the power in the House. And I agree with them, you wouldn't want them. So based on their population, 30,000 each, they would select the number of people that they have they would send all of that, there would be somewhere close to 11,000 members in the House. The House would be equipped to do that because they were expecting it. And it could all be set up using computers and video and technology. So, I mean, obviously we have ourselves a huge quagmire that goes back more than 200 years now. Um, what would be step one in going back to really following the Constitution and saving ourselves? Okay, I, I, 
I've, I've outlined that step, these steps a lot of times, and they are outlined in my book, Saving the Constitution, in the conclusion. They're outlined. The very first thing you've got to do is you've got to select people that are constitutionally minded. Now, the problem is a lot of people stand up and say they are, but they have no intention of doing it. So you got to get the liars out of there. How do you do that? You find a political party that is interested in putting the Constitution in place again. There's only one. The Constitution Party is the only one that's trying to do that. Nobody else gives a darn. But the Constitution Party wants to do that. Let's strengthen the Constitution Party so they can elect the representatives. If everyone that wants the Constitution followed would join the party, every one of them, don't just sit back and say, well, I'm, I'm not. Join that party, be a part of it. Then select proper representatives to be in your state legislator, legislature and proper senators to be in your Senate legislature, okay? That group of people would be, if, if, if they would do that. Now, I started talking about this last year in, in June, July and June, June and, June and July. If the people listening to me then, and there were a lot of them, it was on the Info Worship channel, there were a lot of them listening to me. If they would have done that, today we would have enough people going to the House of Representatives to control it with constitutionally minded people because it only takes one election to get control of the House and most control of the Senate. Only takes one election. So this election would be it. We would now be sending some people to the, to the House of Representatives, Congress, that would honor the Constitution. And some of these things I'm talking about could be done. But for sure, your state would be able to honor the Constitution. And the state can nullify every law from the federal government, every decision from the Supreme Court, every executive order, every one of these things, they can nullify it if it's not in accordance with the Constitution. And we've been, we've been doing that over the last decade or two by people looking at things like, like rail ID in the past and said, we're not gonna do it in our state. And they didn't, they had that power. States have more power than they give themselves credit for. They could do these things. Today, we have governors that are, that are part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And we probably have legislatures that are part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Again, if the Constitution Party had been formed, people had belonged to it, people really meant that they wanted to have the Constitution in charge. If they really meant that, they would join that party. We would now have even the governor of Utah would be being replaced by a constitutional man and these all these mandates and all these problems would disappear on that day but they didn't and now they're not going to disappear and now they all start saying to me over and over what can we do what can we do and it's kind of like we've been digging a hole with a steam shovel one one of the things we can do is stop digging and find a way to get control again that's what the lawsuit i've been talking to people about can help do we, all of this color of law is all against federal law. Every one of these government officials that's been doing these things, whether they say they are or not, they are. Every one of them can be taken to a federal court and convicted and thrown in jail. I believe some government officials in our country have been thrown in jail because they are not following the law of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. It's called color of law. That term means they pretend like they have authority that they don't have. That's what that term means, color of law. So yes, could be done. All kinds of things could be done. That's what we should have done. What can we do today? We can just hold these people right accountable and put them in jail. That's so, where they need to be. So if I heard you correctly, step one would be to uh, change party affiliation to the constitutional party. Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, I know I filled out my thing when I moved here to California, but I didn't pay enough attention to it. Um, how do you how do you change first of all? Um, and do you have to write it in on the thing? I mean, I oh. it always seems like there's just the two boxes, you know, 
Republican yeah. or Democrat? You know, I mean, yeah, is there, there another is, box? Or? There's one on, on the form, there's one for every party that exists in the state, and you can choose it. And it's no more difficult than picking up the form, putting your name and information on it, checking the Constitution box, signing it, and sending it in to the Secretary of State. And that means state too, not national. Okay. That's all it is. Lieutenant governor in our state organizes that. You send it to the, to the, it actually goes to the county is where it goes, but you send it to the county and that registers you as a constitutional party member. Doesn't cost anything, doesn't change anything. You don't have to do anything more than you were doing in the Republican party or the Democrat party, but you will now belong to a group of people that wants to get the constitution back. And that's the only group that wants it. Every other group doesn't. And so what kind of teaching courses, classes, what kind of stuff do you do for people who want to go deeper on this with you? Oh, oh, if people want to go deeper on me, the first thing I recommend is they get my Liberty series. That Liberty series is the background for everything else I've written. Saving the Constitution is the most important book. Then I have an institute, Provis Institute of Political Economics. I've organized that. I award bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees. I award people for what they do. I help them get those degrees. Now, you gotta remember that I'm just one guy with one idea in a place that out here in the Midwest, or not the Midwest, I think it's the Midwest. Everybody else thinks it's the mountain states. I'm just one guy out here in this with a very small group of people. So if you took my diploma and you went to the University of Chicago, they'd laugh at you, okay? But that doesn't matter, you have it, you have the information. You can take it to your job. They won't laugh at you. They'll write me and ask me your transcript and I'll send it to them. No problem. They can get that, that degree. They can get as deep as they want. All of, my, all of my textbooks, all of my books are the textbooks. So they're available and they don't cost $300 a book. They cost 20. Okay, it's no problem. They're used to paying 300. Let's just pay 350 to, to register, to be a, to get your doc, your bachelor's degree and a 99 registration fee. That's all it is, 350 a year. That's all it is. It's not thousands and thousands of dollars. Then you start the program and you finish the program and it's outlined, what you need to do is all outlined. And you have a bachelor's degree. Now you have it in your hand and you have learned as we've gone along what the constitution says, what economics says, what economics is going on behind your back that you don't know is going on. Oh, there's enormous amounts of things going on that you don't know are happening because you don't even suspect they're happening. But I help people see those things. That's what I do. Well, Richard, I really appreciate you spending some time with us. The book is called Saving the Constitution by Dr. Richard Proctor. Um, I do hope that all of you will go out and get it um, thank you so much, Richard, for spending some time with us here on the show today. It's very fine, Steve. I like to do it. I'll do anytime you want. I'll do any number of times you want. Okay. I really appreciated the time with Richard. Fun book, interesting information. I love history anyway, so I love diving back into that kind of stuff and seeing, you know, what was the intent and what is it? And I really hope that regardless of where you stand on things, that you will take the time to get the book and to have the information so that um, if you take a stand on this issue, that you'll be standing on facts and on information rather than just on opinion. I mean, it's okay to have your own opinion, don't get me wrong, but it's really good when your opinion can be founded in some really great information. That's a great way to thrive. We're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back here on Thriving Entrepreneur. If you're an author who's on a mission, stand out with your brand out. 
<laughs> Check this out, guys. Yep, everything's marketing, and marketing is everything. Your existing book can become a best-selling book, or even, hey, like mine, a number one international best-selling book in five days. Listen, if your business isn't known by everybody, it's obscurity and that's death, right? The same thing is true for your book. If you're not happy with the way your book is performing, you got that far and then it just fell off the face of the planet kind of feeling, go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Schedule a talk with Steve. It's risk-free. It's guaranteed. It's proven. We've done it thousands of times. What are you waiting for? Yes, yourbestsellertoday.com. This time next week, you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve. Reach the people that you came to serve. Come on now. What are you waiting for? Grab a pen. Here we go. All you got to do is book a call, yourbestsellertoday.com. Go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. What does your purpose compel you to do? What does your passion drive you to take a stand on? In the last segment, you know, it was definitely something that I think everybody has an opinion on and there are people that are going to stand on both sides of that particular issue and that's okay. I love good discourse and I love having really great information to then form my opinions on. So now we want to move forward. This is such a fun one. I think this will make a really great movie too if um, if Michael ever decides to do it and um, it's a really interesting discourse in an issue that's going on that I had no idea about. I mean, I should have. The information was there. I just never really thought about it. But there are people who bring information like this to us so that we can then have new information and possibly even find ourselves wanting to take a stand in that. Either way, it will help you be able to see how what you do in life will help you take an issue and take a stand on what you find passionate, compelling, and driven to take a stand for. So with that said, let's jump into our next international best-selling author and uh, this fun book. Join me in welcoming Michael Reppas. Hey, Michael, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. So your latest book that is an international bestseller, um, Why Don't We Just Sue the British Museum? Um, I'm so excited to hear about it. I mean, what a wild thing. So um, tell us first just a little bit about your background and who you are in the world. Well, first of all, let me thank you for inviting me on your show. I I sincerely appreciate it. Um, A little bit about myself. I am, geez, I am a man of many hats. Um, first and foremost, I, I suppose I am a, I'm a litigator. I do business litigation. I do international litigation. I write contracts. Um, I do all kinds of uh, uh, fun things in court um, and um, I guess rather exciting in that regard. Uh, the second hat that I wear is that of being uh, I guess a bit of an academic. I've, uh, I've done well in, in writing academically. I've published um, in a few very large, uh, well-known um, legal um, legal publications, uh, they're called law reviews, um, and I've lectured quite a bit. On one that I've become over the years, I've become somewhat of an expert on is is with respect to antiquities law, and specifically about you know looted antiquities. You know what the law is. You know how it applies to countries who have had their cultural property taken away from them, you know, and put into, you know, into museums spread out across the world, what rights do these countries, to these people of those countries have to reclaim their, their property. And that particular vein is how and sort of why I came to write the, you know, the book that, you know, you've nicely enough invited me onto your show to talk about, you know, why don't we sue the British Museum? And that's specifically about looted pieces from the Parthenon temple in Athens, Greece that are now in the British Museum and they are not going to be voluntarily returned by the British government. They've been there for, you know, over 200 years and 
um, you know, my take on this is to address it in, you know, in the form of a legal challenge in court. Heretofore, all the other efforts at resolving this have really just been focused on having international dialogue and having ministers address it and trying to, you know, come to, you know, a an agreement, um, you know, that would avoid litigation. So that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's such a fun read. So to help people out, um, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of years over the course of time, the Parthenon has been looted over and over again. Um, and some of the stuff ended up in the British Museum. Um, so you were part of the team that did sue the British Museum then? Or how did that actually work? No, there's actually, there's not been a lawsuit filed ever. Um, and part of what I formed a, uh, I formed a committee here in the United States, an international committee, uh, to lobby for the for the voluntary return of the pieces, you know, from London to Athens. Uh, there are a number of different international committees that exist in the world, all all with the same um, all with the same goal. Um, my take on it, being the American cowboy litigator that uh, I suppose I am, um, was that you know, well, you know, all of these efforts, um, you know, at having, you know, dialogue resolve the problem really have, have amounted to, you know, to, to no deal being in place. I didn't see any possible way that dialogue was going to resolve the situation. So my take on it was to analyze it from a legal perspective, as I would for any client in any dispute. And I mapped out, you know, the, the course of action, what would I do if I were the lead person you know, involved in this, and I ended up, you know, not only drafting an actual complaint that, you know, has been collecting dust for a decade here in my, um, you know, in, in, in my office, um, but I took it one step further. Let me actually, let me actually write a story of what this trial would be. Let me, let me, you know, let, let me have everyone suspend their disbelief for, you know, a few hours while you're reading this and, and let me walk you through what I would do with a case like this and I thought the most compelling person to to sort of bring into this story would be the actual you know individual whose name was Lord Elgin who actually removed all the pieces you know from Athens in 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 the early 19th century so I I created a trial and I put him as the star witness and, and I and I was able to luckily I was able to collect the actual an actual copy of the transcript for Elgin, these questions, well, how did you come into this? What right did you have to have these pieces? And because he sold everything to the British government and the British government then donated them to the British Museum. So they've been in the British Museum ever since. So I, I decided, let me, let me attack him. Let me show people what I would do with his testimony. And it sort of evolved into this, into this book. Um, about this, you know, the trial that didn't take place that should take place. And then I invite the I invite the reader to sort of sit as if you're a member of the jury and at the end, give it to, to them. Well, how would you decide this case? And, you know, I, I hope that by constructing this, this very unique, odd trial um, that never took place, should take place, perhaps will take place, <laughs> that, that I that I present the story, I present the history, I present the, the dispute, I present the law. I, I, I hope to do it all in a, very, in a very pleasing way that actually does invite the person to, to take a stance at the end and, and make a decision. Do you, do you think they should be returned or shouldn't they be? What do you do with people's, you know, that still hasn't been resolved today. So why don't we just sue the British Museum? I mean, what would happen if we just took out a lawsuit and sued the British Museum for owning things that don't belong to them? I'm with you, Steve. That's that's exactly what I suggest. I think I think the main argument, though, um, against bringing litigation really is is the, the fear of the domino effect that would that would follow. If, for example, if if Greece sued the British Museum. And we're able to prove that these pieces were, you know, forcibly removed from the Parthenon without any authority, without any, uh, without any right, and they were never returned. 
and Greece would prevail in that lawsuit, and then the British Museum would have to, you know, release all those pieces back to Greece, then I think you'd have many, many other countries who would be in line uh, with very similar suits. And I think, you know, once they prevail against the British Museum, I think every international museum around the world uh, would be facing, you know, the, you know, the decimation of their collections. So I think that's the general fear, uh, uh, you know, is that domino effect and what could happen if, you know, if my aggressive way prevailed. So we pretty much would end up with almost no museums, basically. Well, here's here's why. I mean, that that's their that's the way they present. I think that argument though is flawed, and I think it's flawed because I, I don't think the purpose is to destroy museums. I think the purpose is to confirm ownership. Um, you know, museums who have taken you know, cultural property from from one country and put it on display in their country, um, I, I think they do so with a a knowledge, a belief, and a complete um, perpetuation of the myth that they own these pieces, and ownership is the key to it. If, for example, you know we're, we're Americans, let's let's take the um, let's take the Statue of Liberty, and you know picture the Statue of Liberty in your mind. Okay, Steve. Now I want you to I want you to break up the Statue of Liberty into a hundred pieces. Okay. Um, now I want you to take those hundred pieces of Statue of Liberty and I want you to spread them across the world in different museums. Okay. Um, now you're, you're a red-blooded American. You love your country and, and you are now helpless to get the pieces back of your most beloved cultural icon of what represents your country. You know, as Americans, you know, now, especially where we sit in a position of power, I don't think many Americans would be, you know, very happy with that type of arrangement. And I don't think we would sit back passively and, and, and let our cultural property, you know, be destroyed and displayed by that. And then on top of that, they claim that they own it. So, you know, the head of the Statue of Liberty is, is, is owned by, you know, some museum in France and, you know, uh, you know, the torch is owned by, you know, some, some museum in China. I don't think that, I don't think that many Americans would, you know, accept that. And, and, and I think that that's the strong point of, of this argument, because you have a country, in, in this case, you have a, a country, Greece, that does not have the physical power, the economic power, the military power. They don't have the ability to just go and take back this property. And yet they are wounded by it. They're embarrassed by it. They're, you know, the most recognizable piece of Greek ancient history is the Parthenon and it's owned by somebody else. So, you know, I, I, I think, I think if you, if you read this book and you, you allow yourself, you know, just to, just to weigh the facts of it, if you personalize it, wherever you are in whatever country you are, I think we, we all at the end of the day, recognize that cultural property is something special. And I think it's something that has to be preserved. And I think it's something that has to be protected. And I think in instances where we have a clear, you know, history, uh, and we have evidence to show that something was looted from one country and taken to another, I think we have to agree that it has to be returned. And, and that's really where, where this entire, you know, this entire argument goes and and that's why i've spent so much time in you know in this particular subject and that's why i spent so much time just trying to craft a clever way of presenting this to you know non-lawyers so they can really feel like they're part of this story um you know and then you know hopefully at the end when when again you're you're a witness you're you're rather you're you're a member of the jury on this on this fictitious trial and hopefully at the end when it comes your turn to vote Hopefully, you know, you, you'll vote, uh, you know, according to what, you know, I, th I think our conscious, our consciousness dictates us to vote, and that would be to, you know, to return this cultural property. It would make a really fun movie. I wonder what would be the better ending for it in the movie to have the jury find in favor of Greece and have all the pieces get returned or have them not end up changing things and kind of leaving it as is. 
Oh boy, come on. If I'm writing it, you know how it ends. Right. <laughs> you just, you know what I'm saying? I mean, For can drama you see purposes. how it would go both ways, you know, That's, as far as just yeah. Hollywood version of it? Be a yeah, fun movie, know. though. Yeah. Well, I might have to talk to my buddy that does screenwriting and see if they want to make a movie out of this. Well, I think Robert Downey Jr. would play a perfect uh, Mike Rappus as the uh, as lead lawyer. There you me. go. Absolutely. <laughs> um, the, the only question then would be is, do you want him to look more like Iron Man or more like Dr. Doolittle? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it was, that's a good point. I think it would have to be Doolittle, maybe with the spirit of Iron Man. I oh, I love it. So yeah. um, on a more personalized level for, you know, people who, you know, don't live in, say, England or different places like that, what is something that we can do um, to at the very least have this not be another issue in another hundred years? You know, it, that's a hard question. It's a good question. It's a hard question, though, at the same time. Uh, I, I'm asked a, a lot, you know, what, what, can, what can I do as a regular person? Can I join your committee? Can I make a donation? You know, all those things are nice, but, but I don't think that's that's certainly not the point of what what I've been doing and why I'm I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I think this is an issue that we need to be educated on. I think Americans are still the the leaders of light in the world. I think we are the ones who 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 generally really still follow our consciousness and we we do what we think is right. Um, you know the American, you know the general American person. So. In an issue like this, my my personal goal and my personal satisfaction and the benefit that I receive from doing all this is really just educating people and to let them know that, you know, Americans, we're in a very unique position right now. We are in the position of power. No one has taken our Statue of Liberty, you know, from the previous example and, and cut it into pieces and spread it around the world and claimed ownership over it. Um, you know, that's not happened to us. We're not experiencing that. But what would it feel like? You know, put your put the put the other person's shoe on for a minute and try to feel what it would be like. And, and you know what's right and wrong. So if you know, if you know as an American what's right and wrong, then you know, you you've been educated and you you know what's the plight of of you know a, a rather second world country, you know, a, a poor country who 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 was unable certainly to defend themselves when this looting took place. And now one in the modern world that still can't go back and 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 demand that their their property be returned to them. So I think as as an American listener, if if you know you read the book and if you're compelled by this and, and you you're faced with the question, what do I do? Well, then I think what you need to do is you need to start writing some letters. And I think you need to find who who your local government is. And I think you need to say, hey, um, you know, I don't know what your position on this is, you know, mayor or congressman or congresswoman or senator so-and-so, uh, but I really think that you should support, you know, Greece's efforts to have, you know, their, their Parthenon sculptures returned to them, um, you know, and, I, and then I think if you do that, then, you know, maybe based on where you're from, your personal family is from, are you from Egypt? Okay, well, there's pieces, you know, from, from the Sphinx that are also in the British Museum. Are you from you know, are, are you from, you know, Uganda? Are you from wherever you're from? I can almost verify, you know, with certainty that there is some piece of your cultural property that is in one of the major international museums. And, and if this issue interests you and, and infuriates you in that, you know, the ownership and possession have been stripped from these smaller countries, then I think you, you know, you should say something. You should write a letter. You should complain. Because that's really how we get change done. You know, we we get we have enough people who demand change, and, and change comes. But until we're all educated on a subject, until we're all compelled to make a change, um, there's just a few people who you know are are trying to you know draw attention to the issue, and it really takes um it takes a whole small army of us to uh, you know to convince the powers that be to do the right thing sometimes, and I think that's where we are in this issue. And a great place to start would be going to Amazon and getting the book. 100% of the author's proceeds are donated to the American Committee for the Reunification of the Parthenon Sculptures Incorporated. The book is called Why Don't We Just Sue the British Museum? A Litigator's Perspective on the Parthenon Marbles Debate 
written by Michael Rampus. Michael, I appreciate so much you spending some time on the show here with us today. Oh, it was a pleasure. And again, Steve, thank you so much for inviting me. I, I really appreciate it. Well, I just, that book is so much fun. And it really brings to mind some things that I would have never thought of, but yet they make so much sense. And and then the questions arise, does it you know, completely eliminate the concept of museums? Um, or will there only be things like dinosaur bones and stuff like that in museums because we should give items of antiquity back to the countries they came from? Or because they're ancient civilizations that happened to exist inside of where another country is now, do they have rights to it? I mean, there's a lot of interesting discussions that can come from that particular book. And it's a lot of fun. Um, like I said with Michael in the interview, um, it would be interesting to see if it got made into a movie, which way they decided to end it. Did they, you know, would they decide to end it with uh, the jury saying, yes, we agree it should go back to Greece? Or would they end it, um, you know, inside with the British Museum? And um, I think it's interesting. The biggest reason why I really appreciated that was because it really points out both of these authors do such a great job of taking a stand for something they believe in, but then the passion of who they are, the person, the purpose that they have in this life is how that stand then takes shape. Um, you know, Richard is a academic and um, he has academically dug out and found the information and now is teaching on that because that's who he is and his passion drives him to do that. Michael is a, an attorney. So what else would an attorney do but look at a legal case and say, this is how I try that case and this is why what I believe, what I'm going to take a stand for, why I think I'm right. You know, now, your skills are different. You're uniquely you. But you can take your stand and use your skills to be able to really make a difference in the things that are important to you. To latch your skills onto things that are important and of interest to you and make a difference. And then, yes, I do encourage you, go out there, put it in a book form. Mm -hmm. The world needs more great information, fun reading, all of that kind of stuff. And so I really do hope that you will take a stand and you will share your message with the world, the passionate, um, purpose-driven person that you are, because you are uniquely brilliant. You were created for a purpose. And the world so needs you to be exactly who you are, to take the stand on the things that are important to you, and to be the best version of yourself today. You may even get new information and change your mind in the future, and that's okay too. But it's about our passion propelling us to our purpose in life and being the best version of ourselves as we move through this life from thriving to thriving. Sometimes it may not feel that way, I know. But even in the darkness, I can swear to you, there is light and you will find yourself again living as a thriving entrepreneur. I so want that for you. And I hope that you are working, living and moving every day towards living as a thriving entrepreneur. Until we're together again next time, have a great week. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. If you're an author who's on a mission, stand out with your brand out. 
<laughs> Check this out, guys. Yep, everything's marketing, and marketing is everything. Your existing book can become a best-selling book, or even, hey, like mine, a number one international best-selling book in five days. Listen, if your business isn't known by everybody, it's obscurity and that's death, right? The same thing is true for your book. If you're not happy with the way your book is performing, you got that far and then it just fell off the face of the planet kind of feeling, go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Schedule a talk with Steve. It's risk-free. It's guaranteed. It's proven. We've done it thousands of times. What are you waiting for? Yes, yourbestsellertoday.com. This time next week, you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve. Reach the people that you came to serve. Come on now. What are you waiting for? Grab a pen. Here we go. All you got to do is book a call, yourbestsellertoday.com. Go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.